From How We Fight for Our Lives by Saeed Jones. Dear God, hear me, praying for one of your lambs. His mother has chosen the path of Satan and decided to pull him down too. I was dizzy. I felt like all the lights in the room were on me. I wondered what my back looked like to the people in the pews. My head was bowed. I probably looked like I was crying. I wanted to turn and scream out that I was not my mother's fault. Fight back, God. Make her suffer. The word her hit me. If only I could grab the fire blazing through me and hold on to it long enough to roar back at this man. Who the fuck are you? I know you aren't talking about my mother, but I couldn't do it. I kept my head down, stunned and silent. I felt my knees wobble as if I might fall onto my side. Put every ailment, every disease on her until she breaks under the weight of the Holy Spirit. I turned my head slightly and looked at my grandmother. My mother had a heart condition. When I was five, she had been on the list for a heart transplant. My grandmother knew all of this. She knew her daughter's heart. Her head was bowed and her eyes were closed. She was frowning, but I couldn't tell if it was because of me or him. This man was cursing her daughter, her daughter, the body that linked our bodies. Show her your plagues and save this child. Amen. Welcome to the Art Wife Book Club. I'm your host, Hannah Harley. Hello, hello, Art Wives. Happy holiday season. And welcome to the December edition of the Art Wife Book Club. This, as you may know, is the delayed gratification episode because I announced this book for our club all the way back in October but had to postpone the discussion to this month because my wife and I moved cross country this fall and uh, we were basically catatonic for like three months straight. Definitely still recovering, to be honest. Anyway, we've certainly all waited long enough, so let's get into it. All right, now today's exploration is going to be a little different because Today, we've organized our conversations according to the major beats of the plot of whichever book we were looking at, lingering here and there in little eddies of craft discussion that present themselves along the way. But this time, as I was reading, I couldn't stop thinking about something I was taught that really shaped my understanding of what good writing is and which is beautifully exemplified in many ways throughout this book. So I made the executive decision to turn this into a sort of extended craft talk using this book as the real life embodiment of these certain mechanisms of craft that we can all benefit from studying because they're on display so um, clearly and helpfully here in this book. And this wasn't an easy choice to make because there's so much in this plot worth discussing, obviously. And there's so much in this plot that I myself felt a kinship to as 
someone who was gay and raised in evangelical Christianity as someone who was gay and coming of age in the 90s and 2000s, so help us God, as someone who watched her mother die young, who had angry nightmares of her once she was gone, even as someone who traveled to Barcelona in the wake of my mother grief back in 2011. But I am going to practice great restraint and avoid making this episode all about me because there's something I want to do even more with this episode. Because in addition to this being a podcast about celebrating books, I also wanted to serve as a resource and a support for writers who are submitting their work to literary journals and maybe seeing that work get rejected and then seeing it get rejected over and over again. And this is a very, very, very normal and inevitable part of the submissions process, as I'm sure we've all been told hundreds of millions of times. But it's also painful and discouraging. And as someone who's been on both sides of it, both the submitting writer side and the decision-making editorial side, I want to offer the insights I've gathered from years of reading submitted work and choosing which ones to publish. So to that end, I'm going to kick us off with a little anecdote from my early, early days of studying writing. Two of the teachers who formed me in that time and whose lessons I return to over and over again are the writers Pam Houston and Steve Almond. And these two specifically had such an outsized impact on me because, well, one, they're incredibly smart and thoughtful about the craft of writing, and they're also both really beautifully devoted to the literary arts in a way that I found and continue to find aspirational. And two, because they were some of my first teachers when I was a nascent writer, just beginning to form. And what's special about that is back then, everything I was learning from them was theoretical because I wasn't really practicing craft at that point. I was still writing longhand in notebooks, which, you know, tells you exactly how much editing I was or more accurately wasn't doing at that time. But then I kept working and kept working, and I had the opportunity to discover that all of the lessons my teachers had taught were true. The experience of actually writing my own fully conceived pieces of work and watching those works interface with the external world and with other people showed me how right those original teachers of mine had been. And they each had their kind of signature lessons, right? And for Pam Houston, one of the ideas that she returned to time and again was trust your reader, meaning respect your readers by recognizing that you don't, as a writer, need to spell out every beat and emotion for them. Rather, understand that most readers are, in fact, eager and waiting to meet you on the page and do their own interpretation and extrapolation. They're not passive, dead-eyed consumers who want to be force-fed a story. 
they're active participants in the act of creating stories and making meaning with you. If you give them a shape, they'll fill it in. If you give them a gap, they'll bridge it. And then for Steve Almond, his kind of tagline was, never confuse your reader, meaning avoid being opaque or intentionally vague when sharing a story because the point is to share a story, not to put on a performance of literature so that people can say, wow, how deep and intelligent that writer must be because it sounded beautiful, but I don't understand it at all. I guess it's just over my head, but it's clearly profound and meaningful. And it's clear, right, that there's so much merit in both of these approaches. They're both right, they're both true without question. But as a new writer, I remember being so stressed out by the way that I felt that these ideas were intention or even in opposition with each other. Like, do I trust my reader or do I never confuse my reader? How much do I say? How much space do I leave? Which is it? And I remember even the teachers themselves would sometimes kind of debate about it when they were lecturing together. But with time and with practice, I came to understand that these ideas are not contradictory, they're totally complementary, which we can see in the work of a writer like Saeed Jones. He strikes this balance across both the micro and macro levels of this book, meaning we can find it exemplified in the line level writing and in the bigger picture approach to narrative. And we're going to look at examples of both. So let's start from the very first page of this book, The Prelude, titled Elegy with Grown Folks Music. It's gorgeous, of course, but also useful for a number of reasons. And here's one of the primary ones. The writer is telling us here exactly what's going to happen in this book. Between this prelude and the opening scene of chapter one, in which the narrator starts reading a James Baldwin book and finds an old photograph tucked inside. We know within the first three to five pages that here's a story about a young man who's gay but doesn't quite understand that yet. A young man who's gay in an environment in which it's violently difficult to be gay, and a young man whose mother, the quote, woman with his hometown between her hips, will be dead by the end of it. For instance, let's look at page seven, where he says, gay wasn't a word I could imagine actually hearing my mom say out loud. If I pictured her moving her lips, AIDS came out instead. But in the days following our conversation about the photograph, I could feel the word gay or maybe the word's conspicuous absence, vibrating in the air between us. I'd read in one of my nature books that there are some sounds that occur at a frequency only dogs and special radios can pick up on. Sounds that can only be heard if you were designed to hear them. I could hear that word ringing high above every conversation, every moment, because I thought about being gay all the time. And this is what I'll call the Steve Almond part of the equation that we just looked at. 
this is being not just clear and open with the reader, but also generous with the reader, giving us all the relevant information so that we can actually participate. And I can hear as I'm talking about it that this may sound silly or minor or obvious that writers need to be sure that they're letting their readers know what they're writing about. But I'm spending so much time on it because I've been working on literary journals in various capacities for many years now. And I've read thousands of submissions in that time. And when you read that much work with an eye specifically toward whether it's ready for publication or not, you see patterns begin to emerge. And believe me when I say that one of the primary problems, like I'm talking top three issues with work that comes through any submissions queue, is that it's opaque and withholding. The reader isn't allowed to know what's happening isn't told what the story's about. And again, here, when we're talking about it in these really plain terms, it sounds obvious, doesn't it, that understanding what's happening in a story is a really significant piece of a reader's ability to enjoy that story. But if you haven't read submissions for Lit Mags before, you might be surprised how many of them come through that are completely inscrutable. Sometimes this manifests as writing that reads more like a journal entry, maybe something that has a lot of significance for the writer, but hasn't been translated for an external audience yet. And even more often, I think, the way this manifests is as an attempt toward literary merit, quote unquote, or seriousness. Newer writers can tend to feel that in order to be taken seriously or to write in a way that other people think is good, they can't be plain spoken. Instead, they have to adopt a style of hyper lyrical language or pages full of metaphors or allegorical symbols or whatever their personal poison happens to be. And that they cannot, under any circumstances, tell us what's actually happening because that's just not literary. And that could not be further from the truth because what we've just read from Saeed Jones is of course a work of literary art. And it's also a book in which the writer does not engage in clever dodging or avoidance or vagueness. And I, I'm sympathetic to this impulse in writing because of all of those very normal and human desires to want to be taken seriously and to want to be good. We all feel that, of course. But also because I think this kind of obfuscation is actually reinforced in a lot of writing instruction, right? Like for practically day one of learning to be a writer, everyone is pounding us with the same line about having a hook. What's the hook? You have to have a hook. Keep your writers hooked. It didn't hook me, etc., etc., etc. We hear this all the time in workshops. So I think writers learn to withhold and string their readers along with breadcrumbs. But it doesn't come up only when you're a student of writing. It shows up all the time later in the process too. Like agents are constantly harping on hooks, hooks, hooks because. They're especially preoccupied with commercial appeal and ability to sell and ROI. So there's just an endless stream of rhetoric about hooking readers. 
And so writers are understandably then grasping for any means of keeping readers engaged and trying to create some kind of page turner, edge of your seat effect, that they become terrified to tell us what the fuck is actually happening because they've been made to believe that getting readers hooked is about stringing us along and creating suspense and intrigue and that if we know too much, we'll get bored and turn away. And I think one way we can think about this is as different forms of love. Like there are lots of different ways to be in relationship with others. And the way some people love is by withholding. They want to see how much you care first. They want to be absolutely sure that you love them as much as they love you. So they wait, they hold back, they feign indifference and only offer breadcrumbs of love, affection, attention, affirmation, etc. when it feels absolutely necessary for them to not lose you. And then there's another way. There are other people who are able to engage in secure forms of love and connection. They give love freely, spontaneously, and genuinely. They give it as they feel it without quid pro quo or loyalty tests. And I, like probably many of us, have been the giver of both these kinds of love and the receiver of both these kinds of love. And I can say with complete certainty that the former is an insecure means of engaging with other people and the latter is a secure means of engaging with others. And the same is true in writing. So the question becomes, who do we want to be in our work? And now before we move on to what I'll call the Pam Houston part of this equation, let's look at one more short example of this clarity and directness. This one comes in chapter four, in which the writer says, quote, I made myself a promise, even if it meant becoming a stranger to my loved ones, even if it meant keeping secrets, I would have a life of my own. That sentence could be considered kind of the thesis statement of this entire book. And it's a place where the writer, again, is telling us what's to come, which he proceeds to deliver on for the remaining, you know, 150 pages or whatever. And I think this might be the best example of what I'm getting at with all of this, because the reality is that most of us aren't reading literary fiction and nonfiction because we're so compelled by cliffhangers and big reveals. There are plenty of other genres and mediums that scratch that itch, which is a wonderful thing. But rather, the majority of us come to literary fiction and nonfiction specifically because we're interested in how other human beings interact with the impossible complexities of being alive. How will this particular human interact with these particular impossible complexities? I really want to know, especially when the writing of it is this evocative. So I'd encourage this to any writer who has work they're planning to submit. Look at your pages, especially the first couple of pages if you're working in a shorter form. And if you've built obfuscation or ambiguity into your storytelling style, before you send it out, ask the following question. Is this lack of clarity meaningful to the story I'm telling? Or have I placed it here because I'm either A, trying to telegraph an impression of literary merit or depth, 
or B, trying to create intrigue and quote, hook readers through breadcrumbing information about the plot or the characters. If you find that the answer to that question is either of those two responses, that may be a signal that it's time to revisit the work and invite the reader in more deeply. Because after all, direct communication is connection. And that's one of the primary re reasons any of us are interested in art at all. And there are, of course, no hard and fast rules here for how to achieve this. Each of us has a different style and a different voice and different priorities in our work. But I do feel comfortable saying this at least. If you're working in shorter forms like essays and short stories, your reader should have some understanding of what's happening within the first page, which of course is another way of saying that the reader should have something to care about within the first page. Now, there is also another part of this equation because it can't all be overt methodical directness or signposting. And there's another problem that can emerge if we lean too hard into the clarity aspect, and that is heavy handedness or handholding. And so we have to bring in the Pam Houston side of the equation and trust the reader. And let's look again to Saeed Jones to see how he walks that balance in this book, because there is still a ton of nuance here. And part of this comes because the book starts when he's a youth who is discovering himself. Some of the uncertainty and emotional ambiguity of this book exists because the main character is experiencing massive quantities of uncertainty and emotional ambiguity. And the way that's written in gives us as readers boundless space to fill in the blanks with our own experiences of vicarious discomfort, fear, naivete, hope, anguish, etc. So let's look at a few examples of that. He says, I decided I didn't like the man in the picture. The dirt on his shoes irritated me, and the longer I looked at his smile, the more I felt like he was looking directly at me. Not at the camera in 1982, but at me 16 years later. He grinned like he knew something about me, a punchline I hadn't figured out yet. See how this is emotionally uncertain, but not withholding. There's ambiguity and there are blanks to fill in, but it's not because the writer is being sly or engaging in sleight of hand. It's because he's accurately and clearly depicting his own experience of groping to fill in the blanks. And here's another example from the end of chapter three, which is the chapter in which the narrator and his mother are watching the news report on the death of James Byrd Jr., who is a black man killed in a hate crime four hours away from where they live in Louisville. He says, for a moment, I was the wolf outside the door, but then I was a black boy in America again, curled fetal in his twin bed, a bloody stone in hand, ears ringing with the rattle of chains, silent, troubled and helplessly myself. Just as some cultures have a hundred words for snow, there should be a hundred words in our language for all the ways a black boy can lie awake at night. And this is such a trust the reader type of moment 
because there's nothing heavy handed about this description. There's so much space in it. But again, we would not call it and we don't experience it as withholding or vagueness because sometimes there are experiences and feelings that are just that immense and fraught and perilous and multifaceted. And the only way to do them justice is with high degrees of complexity. Clarity, in fact, would be a lie. And I think what we can learn from this book and what can be a useful way to think about these two complementary considerations, the yin of trust your reader to the yang of never confuse your reader, is how effective it is to be clear with the plot, but subtle with the emotions. And this mirrors reality most of the time. The events of our lives are fairly concrete, but the ways we feel about those events are often very fluid and sometimes even intangible. Now, I did say earlier that this writer strikes balance on both the micro and macro levels of this writing. And now that we've looked at the big picture, let's drill down into some of the exquisite uses of language at the sentence level. And lots of writers do this successfully, of course, but I think there's something really valuable about finding poets who also write prose and reading their work because of their particular way of paying attention to language. And listen, I'm not a poet, and if I'm being honest, I'm not even a poetry lover because what in the fuck are you saying? I don't know what you're saying. I'm far too literal and obvious and crass for poetry, but what I am a lover of is poets who write prose because poets hone two supremely useful skills, which are one, prioritizing beauty in language, and two, prioritizing economy of language. This balance is what matters because economy without beauty is a textbook, and beauty without economy lands us in an overwrought, sickly sweet soup, which is even worse in my opinion. So what do we mean by balance at the sentence level? Well, as we'll see, that can look like familiar images placed in unfamiliar or unexpected context. It can mean a string of common, simple words punctuated by a single rare or pointed word. And I don't mean to say that this writer is achieving this continuously without fail throughout this book. There are, is some banal or, in my experience, ineffectual language. There are some cliches. I do think there's a bit of an over-reliance on reflections or seeing oneself in the mirror as symbolism throughout this book. There's also a part in which the narrator is trying to scrub off sexual shame in the shower at college, which, you know, that's an image we've all seen millions of times. That's an image I myself have used specifically when writing about gay sexual experiences in college. And I don't want to read something I could write. I want to read someone better than me, which most of the time this absolutely is. But that's the cruel reality of using cliches. We may feel like, oh, you know, whatever. It's okay just this once. I can't really think of another way 
to express it, it feels true enough, etc. I'll just use it and get away with it. But unfortunately, it has the opposite effect. It just leaps off the page and makes the reader kind of go, oh yeah, that old chestnut. Because when we encounter cliches, it's like they're in neon because they're so familiar. And it's not fair, but it is true. But for our purposes, let's look at some of those other times, of which there are many, when the writing says exactly what it needs to say in a way only this writer could express it. And I'm going to do this kind of rapid fire style because I want to showcase here how much can be said with so little. And so here we go. Quote, I looked at my grandmother out of the corner of my eye, trying to read her. I saw nothing. She was a cipher. I, on the other hand, was all capital letters. There's an example of a familiar concept in an unfamiliar context. And then here, watching the news, he says, quote, Separated by a heavy silence, we watched the local news reporter's mouth twist and morph to find the right shape for the word dismembered. Page 41, quote, his body became an idea I dragged into bed with me at night. Page 100, he says, By now, I knew the ins and outs of names that were not mine and how to wear them like bodies. Every time I met a man for sex, a new name blossomed in my mouth like a flower I could pull out from between my parted lips and hand to the stranger standing in front of me. The names made me into whoever I needed to be for them. Page 130, quote, If America was going to hate me for being black and gay, then I might as well make a weapon out of myself. And then when his mother is sick for the last time, he says, Retreating to the edge of the living room, I noticed then that she still had mirrors all over the walls. They broke up our bodies and handed them back to us piecemeal. And also, quote, Every conversation, however silly or pleasant, was being had now because of something my mother's heart had set in motion. And then when she dies, he says, As my memory tells it, when I walked into that tiny room, I had a mother, and when I walked out, I didn't. And talking about his grandmother at the cemetery, he says, She had to lean on someone for support, but I can only picture who it wasn't. But let's also spend a little time with examples of simple statements of fact, because I was so thrilled by and appreciative of the way that this writer told us what we needed to know so efficiently and without getting bogged down in over-explanation. Like here, the first sentence of chapter four, we get, Mom, a single parent working two jobs, would send me to Memphis to stay with my grandmother for the second half of summer each year. It's that interjection that is so compelling for me because how quickly are we oriented with those six words, a single parent working two jobs? And let me tell you this, is the way to share necessary logistics or biographical information in your writing, simply, directly, succinctly. 
And then on the very next page, another one I love. How's this for a simple, clear character description? He says, crossed arms, eyes just waiting for another reason to roll, a hand always finding its way to my hip. And then just one more from that very same page. He's now talking about the preacher and he says, quote, all he ever seemed to talk about was how we, we, had to save as many people as possible from the fires of hell. Again, it's a short, simple interjection that does so much work for the reader here. We, instead of launching into a long, meandering explanation of how he wasn't so sure he belonged in that category of we, and he didn't believe those teachings, and why should he have to go out and spread Christianity? But also, he was a young person looking for belonging, and this is what his grandmother cared about and wanted from him, and on and on. No, we get all the same meaning and more from that simple we question mark. Now, before we close, in the name of balance, which is the topic du jour, and because I'm using this book as an example of how to succeed at challenging aspects of storytelling, I will mention that this book, like all books, is not perfect, of course, and in my estimation, in my experience, I felt that the first half of the book was stronger than the second half. I've read this book twice, I felt the same way both times, and I attribute that simply to proximity, because the reality for nonfiction writers is that the things that happened earlier in our lives were longer ago and we've had more time to reflect on and process them and the things that happen later in life are fresher and can be kind of unpasteurized if you will like we as people are still turning those over inside or even still learning how to confront them or think about them and from my understanding of the timeline here, the narrator's mother died in 2011, and this book was released in 2018. And speaking for myself, my mother died in 2007, and I have wrestled with her every single day since. And the way I think about and relate to her changes all the time. And my sense in the reading of the second half is that the writer was not quite ready at the time of this writing to be angry with his mother, which is something every child eventually has to be able to feel toward their parents, no matter how those parents were. But it's hard. It can feel very, very threatening to have to go there. And it can take a long time to be able to go there. And I, of course, don't know this, this writer, this narrator, but the feeling on the page was that his psyche was still reflexively very invested in protecting her, which is something he himself acknowledges on the page a handful of times. There's one instance kind of late in the book when his mom calls him to come visit his grandmother for her birthday, and he says, it annoyed me how easily she was able to pry me away from myself. When I put down the phone, though, my frustration curdled into shame. How could I begrudge the woman who raised me on her own? How dare I, when she had found it in herself to keep loving her own mother through decades of ups and downs? 
And that's a place where I'd be curious with, you know, the passage of more time, if that has changed at all for the, for the narrator and, you know, to be able to see if he's able to let anger exist and recognize that that doesn't actually negate love, that anger and love can exist and sometimes often have to exist at the same time. And there's another, there are a few other moments where the writer talks about using writing almost as a shield or a defense mechanism or a means of avoidance. Here he's talking about writing about the person he called Daniel, who is the one who tried to kill him. And he says, quote, pen as weapon, page as shield. And I think that's an apt description. And we do feel that sometimes. And that's okay. You know, we as writers have to write about the things that happened to us, even if they happened a year ago or a month ago. And so there's nothing wrong with that, but it is felt on the page. So I wanted to acknowledge that for those of you who may be studying this book to learn about craft. So uh, thank you, Saeed Jones, for the lessons you've brought us today. And when we next see each other here, it will be 2024. And there's no book announcement today because we're starting the new year with another version of the Art Wife Book Club Shorts Edition. And this time, the short form work just might be a song. And when I say might, I mean absolutely positively will be. And also, I wanted to let you know that every year, Artwife takes off two weeks for the holidays, starting on the winter solstice. So we'll be quiet and hibernating from December 21st to January 4th, which means the next episode won't come out on our usual first Tuesday of the month. Instead, it will be released the following Tuesday, January the 9th. So happy holidays, everyone. See you next time. Thanks for joining the Artwife Book Club. This podcast is a project from Artwife, a digital literary and arts magazine publishing essays, short stories, visual art, and video art. Explore the magazine at artwifemag.com. See you next time.